welcome to the CPHI annual report media roundtable. I'm Fiona Barry and I'm an editor at FarmSource, part of Global Data. And I'm joined on the roundtable by Dawn Ecker, who is director of Biotrack Services, and Dan Stanton, the editor and founder of Bioprocess Insider. So hello to you both. Hi. And obviously a bit of a different roundtable from what we're used to in unusual circumstances. Uh, I am dialing in from Scotland at the moment. Where are both of you joining us from? Um, I'm located in the Tampa, Florida area. And I am in Montpellier in France. Okay, so still an international vibe, at least, to the CPHI uh, meeting. Um, so let's start off. Um, there's obviously the pandemic hanging over this. It's, uh, it couldn't be a more important time, really, to discuss pharmaceuticals and their manufacturing. The race is on to find therapies and also vaccines for COVID-19. But I think we're all also thinking about the way that the manufacturing of these COVID-19 therapies is going to affect uh, all the other therapies that uh, we have in the pipeline or on the market um, and the capacity crunch that might result from that. So I wanted to start, Dawn, um, by talking to you first, um, your contribution to the annual report, you talk a lot about biologics capacity and the fact that there has been a year-on-year -year increase, um, both in demand and in manufacturing capacity there. So could you tell us a little bit how significant uh, an increase have we had in, uh, in demand and in, uh, in investment in capacity there? Sure. So um, our database tracks both supply and demand um, for recombinant biopharmaceuticals and demand we're projecting uh, is going to increase to about 4,700 kiliters by 2024. And this is, this has been about, this has been over 10% uh, year over year growth uh, is what we're projecting uh, since, from 2019. Um, I think that we as an industry have essentially platformized, if that's the word, um, monoclonal antibodies, um, so that way uh, everyone can discover and produce monoclonal antibodies, and this is definitely contributing to the demand. Um, on the capacity side, we're increasing by about uh, 2,000 kiloliters um, from going from about 4,700 to about 6,500 in 2024. Um, and our industry realizes that not only are we going to discover, but we need to manufacture these processes. So both uh, product companies as well as CMOs are building uh, to ensure that we have sufficient capacity for the, the recombinant biopharmaceuticals uh, that we're discovering. And what are you seeing in terms of geography there, both now and in your future trends? Where's the capacity being built? Uh, capacity, traditionally North America has held the most capacity, but what we're seeing is we've got a couple of large scale facility builds in Europe. Um, and so what will happen in about uh, 2023, uh, Europe will have uh, roughly the equivalent capacity to North America. And uh, Asia continues to grow. Each year we do find that uh, capacity is continuing to be built uh, according to US and EU standards. Um, and are, are available to support um, the globalization of biopharmaceuticals. Okay, so then the big question, uh, the big issue that's kind of throwing a spanner into everyone's predictions, 
The impact then of COVID-19 um, vaccines, first of all, um, there's been really only one vaccine approved in Russia, which will probably only be for the domestic market, but certainly we have the multinational vaccines in very late stage development. So we're all certainly hoping that one of those will be approved soon, but we'll have those coming in. And for vaccines, this is gonna be absolutely unprecedented volume demand, isn't it? Like we're gonna need billions of doses being made in parallel. We've never had anything like this before. And then for, we're also possibly gonna have large molecule COVID-19 therapies like monoclonal antibodies. So what's gonna be the impact of all of that on the manufacturing of other biologics? Are we gonna see capacity crunches and shortages? That's, that's an excellent question. And that's something that we're, we're tracking um, within our, our biotech database, both on the supply and the demand side, uh, especially focusing on the, the large molecule uh, products that we're developing specifically for COVID. Um, what, uh, what several companies are actually planning are to you know, develop these monoclonal antibodies, which are specific for COVID-19 proteins and use them essentially as a bridge uh, to get us to a vaccine point, because we know our vaccine, vaccines haven't finished phase three trials, and it will take a little while for everyone or enough people to get vaccinated. So there is kind of a gap, um, which allows a lot of folks um, who might be um, affected by COVID-19, um, frontline you know, healthcare workers and, and folks like that. So what we're thinking is that a lot of these large molecules will be used to, to, as a stopgap measure. Um, and when you actually look at, say, you know, the Regeneron product, um, which is looking at, you know, roughly eight grams per patient, um, and, you know, as a single dose, um, when you look at that complex set with the number of patients, um, you know, including frontline healthcare workers, you're easily up into the metric ton um, demand capabilities. Um, these products are going to have to be made in large scale, um, you know, 10,000, 20,000 liters. Um, and this is going to take uh, quite a bit of capacity, uh, which I think is the, an understatement. Um, and what that might mean is that um, companies might suspend manufacturing typical products they would normally be making to serve uh, the regular population, relying on what they've uh, stockpiled or, or pre-manufactured. Um, this, this is definitely something that is, is as you said, un unprecedented. And what will be the effect that I want to pick up on the last bit you said, what's the effect then um, for CMOs? Obviously, they rely on these contract service agreements, but are they going to have to be turning down certain kinds of agreements because they've reserved capacity for vaccines? How, how do you see that working in terms of the agreements between uh, drug companies and service providers? That's, that's, an excellent, that's an excellent question. We do know that and, and I believe it's been in the, in the uh, media that, I mean, everyone understands this is a pandemic. This is something that is unprecedented. So it is my understanding that some of the CMOs have begun to rearrange some of their schedules, asking um, clients who are currently slotted for manufacturing um, to potentially wait a few weeks to kind of you know, squeeze in um, a, a COVID product. Um, and, and we have heard instances of that within the industry. Um, and I think this is just kind of a, how should we say, a team effort um, in order to uh, uh, get much needed treatments. To the okay. 
And I also wanted to clear up we, when we say there's a there's a difficulty with capacity, but people like me who aren't intimately um, aware of uh, what's involved in uh, in the cell culture process, what what exactly are we talking about? Is it that there isn't enough bioreactor space? Is it that there isn't enough staff? Or is it cell culture media? What's the real issue here when you're you're trying to work out the timetable to fit all of these in? It's probably a little bit of everything contributing to this, but mostly it's it's just the amount of bioreactor space that we need. Bioreactors typically only run 18 batches per year. Um, so we do have, it's, it's a limited amount we can manufacture within the year. Um, we do probably have um, with, with COVID infections, there might be shortages in staff. Um, because you, we, we are quarantining workers who do get exposed. Um, I do know that some CMOs have developed um, pod manufacturings where, you know, your, your certain folks are coming in on certain days, media prep comes in on certain days, and that isn't the days that other teams are coming in, all in order to ensure uh, a continuity of service. Um, we also are projecting that there might be some stockpiling of materials because if there are supply chain interruptions, um, you know, the last thing you wanna do is, is not be able to manufa manufacture something because you're missing um, a widget that might be important to, the, to the, uh, the, pro the manufacturing process. I think this is a good point to bring in Dan, because when we're talking about um, trying to build capacity and worries about shortages, something that has been a big talking point politically in the US, uh, is the idea of bringing manufacturing home to the US. Um, it's something that Trump has been pursuing with his executive orders. Uh, and it's, all, it's equally actually also on the Biden platform, the idea of uh, bringing a lot of the active pharmaceutical ingredient manufacturing and finished dose manufacturing that's typically done uh, all around the world, but especially in China and India, but bringing that back to the US. Um, and Dan, you were speaking earlier today at CPHI with Frank Gupton, who is intimately involved with the FLOW project. Uh, and the aim of that, well, I'll let you speak about it, but in short, the, the aim of that anyway, is to increase um, pharmaceutical manufacturing on US soil, both for COVID-19 therapies, but also for um, other essential medicines that might be in shortage. So Dan, can you tell us a little bit more about that project and what you learned from Frank? Well, before I start talking about Frank and Flo, um, I must say that um, having coronavirus in, a, in an election year has obviously um, brought up the whole pharmaceutical industry as a um, politicizing tool. And um, whether it's drug pricing that we saw uh, that we've seen um, the Trump administration um, continue to try and um, uh, sort out in their own particular way, um, or this whole um, making products in America, bringing America, bringing um, pharmaceutical manufacturing back home. There is a lot of discourse which I'm not sure is particularly healthy. Um, I mean. Dawn, um, Fiona, you both know that the um, pharmaceutical industry is global in its nature. Um, for years now, uh, the US and Europe have been reliant on um, countries like India and China to produce uh, both APIs and finished products. And um, 
and then you sort of see some of the investments on on the um, uh, the, the large molecule front in in China through Wuji and in um, Korea through Samsung, and you know those products are being made for a global market. Um, so there's still going to be a reliance on international manufacturing to feed the demand for pharmaceuticals. The Flow Corporation that um, that kind of jumped into the public consciousness conscience in um, May time when um, they were awarded a huge amount of money um, from the um, from the um, U.S. government. I think it was three hundred and fifty odd million dollars. You know, three hundred and fifty million isn't a uh, isn't a small amount anyway for a company that um, didn't really exist until um, that press release got sent out in May. And there are a lot of questions surrounding um, the uh, the company. Itself itself, its agenda, whether this was a political stunt or not. So to be clear, the money was awarded to um, increase pharmaceutical manufacturing, but some people in the contract manufacturing industry questioned why the money had been given to a pretty new company that didn't have its own facilities yet, as opposed to an established uh, contract manufacturing organization is that about right Dan it, it kind of is I think it's a bit more complicated than that um, and it's still there's still a sort of shroud of mystery um, surrounding the company but I, I did speak to Frank Gopton who um, founded the company and um, ha- he's um, you know he's had a, um, a long career in the farmer industry 30 plus years um, where he's brought continuous manufacturing processes to um, uh, to products within I think Bristol Myers Squibb he used to uh, sorry Boehringer Ingelheim he used to work with um, and he um, instigated a continuous manufacturing process there and he's got very solid um, pharmaceutical credentials and that was one of his main points that he he, he wasn't looking to um, his company isn't looking to uh, to stop overseas manufacture of APIs and finished products but really um, offer a um, alternative and that would be done using that money to um, to develop and um, begin manufacturing uh, some of the, uh, the, 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 the generic drugs that are currently in, um, uh, um, in shortage in the US. Um, he was unable to talk about which specific drugs um, and a lot of details regarding the company uh, remain under wraps. However, um, he was pretty clear that there could be a a sort of move towards continuous processing um, as a way of um, alleviating some of the shortage issues with regards to manufacturing and at the same time uh, producing a sort of uh, US um, stockpile of crucial drugs in short supply. Okay. Well, Dawn, I'll leave it up to you if you'd like to comment on the uh, the politics side of the flow um the flow deal but certainly i'd be interested to hear um do you think the the idea of continuous processing helping solve shortages is that something that you're seeing um from your colleagues in the industry um continuous manufacturing at least for biologics really hasn't taken off it's been around for a while for uh small molecules um and it is a great idea um, but I think that only time will tell if we're actually going to be able to uh, bring these uh, APIs or uh, important products home to be able to manufacture them at 
an acceptable price level. Just with regards to continuous manufacturing, I think it's it's important to differentiate between uh, small molecules and large molecules here because there are, I think there's four or five um, small molecule drugs that have been approved by the FDA to be manufactured in a continuous manner. Um, mm-hmm. now, debatable what the word continuous means there but um one of them was uh i think most famously uh rutgers and novartis um which was reformulated a few years back and then approved and um the fda has been very vocal janet woodcock specifically um about bringing continuous uh, making continuous manufacturing a um a way of increasing supply of pharmaceuticals to the us and ultimately bringing the drug price down um and then yeah as dawn said on the biologics front um i think continuous <laughs> strangely means something slightly different mm-hmm. there because um you know there's um, a lot of companies uh, a lot of um, of the vendors who are um pushing and uh, developing um tools and equipment that deal with perfusion in the upstream and then continuous um, purification processes in the downstream and um, really the the potential is spoken about both by the vendors and some of the uh, the manufacturers who, who use this but I, I'm as Dawn said I'm not sure it, it's quite um, uh, moved into the mainstream of, of biologic manufacturing. Dawn, I wanted to ask, one point you made in the annual report is that most mammalian cell culture capacity is still in-house. Now, that is a little bit surprising in some ways because we've got these huge players in the CMO space. We've got Samsung Biologics, we've got Lonza, we've got Wuji. Why is it that um, pharma companies are still investing in their own facilities and their own technology rather than outsourcing? Uh, it's just control, honestly. That's, there's no better way to ensure uh, your supply chain and ensure your product quality by controlling the, man, the manufacturing yourself. Um, what we have seen is, uh, I know BMS has actually partnered with um, Samsung for uh, their PD-1 inhibitor. Um, and we have seen large pharma uh, outsource some of their older legacy products. Um, but seem to to prefer to control uh, manufacturing of newer products in-house. And, you know, most of the, a lot of new companies who are developing their products or might be their first time products, um, they're really looking at whether they want to build or buy their capacity. And a lot of times it's, it's, it's simply easier just to buy their capacity. Whereas, you know, uh, large established companies who already have the capacity, their tendency is still going to be to manufacture in-house, but it just might be a selection of which products are manufactured in-house. And Dan, uh, I'd be remiss on the media roundtable if I didn't ask about the survey. So this is um, a survey that you'll find at the front of the annual report, uh, and it's about um, confidence levels in sourcing from various uh, areas of the world. So Dan, can you tell us what's changed since this time last year? Obviously a lot has changed, but uh, how are different countries viewed uh, compared with this time last year? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's interesting. As you said, this is a um, survey that comes out every year as part of CPHI. Um, and there's a, a few things that are very different this year. Um, the confidence level overall across the pharma industry has has um, 
has gone down for the first time in however many years. Um, perception um, across every industry has dropped because of coronavirus. But specifically, um, if you look at the overall scores, um, China has um, dropped heavily this year. Um, and I wonder whether this feeds into what we were talking about before with the concept of bringing manufacturing back home um, when there's a pandemic on, um, when everyone's desperate to um, manufacture and get supply of um, life-saving pharmaceuticals and vaccines, people somehow <laughs> become slightly nationalistic, maybe. once. Point though that China, the, the confidence in sourcing products from China has decreased. But for India, it's gone slightly higher. And India was actually, um, it, it restricted its exports of certain APIs and finished dose products um, early on in the pandemic when China wasn't really doing that. So it's interesting that, that China has this reputation that India is not suffering in the same way. I I do think the um I, I don't think the India um India is slight is a slight anomaly here um when you're looking at sort of the API um uh, availability and supply from India um, and then you look at the sudden leap in Italy because that's the the other end of the scale because confidence in Italy has has risen um, uh, remarkably which seems to indicate that there's um, a uh, more of a uh, a reliance maybe within the EU of um, sourcing their APIs um, within an EU country um, specifically. And um, yeah, I mean, India has risen. That, 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 that has, has increased um, their overall score on last year. Um, but compared to Italy, which has um, increased by six percentage points, um, there's, there's definitely something slightly... Um, uh, uh, not nationalistic, regionalistic um, uh, at bay here. Um, China, you know, China um, continues to um, be a huge source of manufacturing and uh, uh, people's perception of that um, hasn't changed on the, to on, on the sort of levels of manufacturing. Um, and we've spoken already about how um, their capacity is being expanded there. But I think the perception and the trust and transparency from China has decreased because of um, coronavirus. I also think maybe um, there is a change going on in China, as, um, as potentially highlighted by um, another article in the report by um, Bioplan Associates, that China is shifting from uh, being a potential or an actual manufacturer for um, the US and um, for Western markets, and is now manufacturing um, for its own population and it, its own products, in fact. And since 2019, um, six uh, monoclonal antibodies have been approved in China for China. Um, and I think that's uh, twice as many as has been have been approved in the last 15 years. So I think there is a national a, a national agenda going on and the desperate need to um, secure supply of product. But I think also there is a um, um, just a changing, well, just a, a general change in, uh, in, in the supply chains that would would be going ahead whether COVID-19 was um, uh, being inflicted on us all or not. So 
there's a lot going on in the industry at the moment. I think and that's, yeah, a lot going on is uh, is an understatement, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, well, I think we'll we'll end things there then. Thank you very much, Dan, and thank you very much, Dawn, uh, for contributing. And everyone can explore a little bit more of that by having a read of the annual report. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Fiona.